Good morning. Pray all of you had a wonderful, wonderful Christmas, reflecting on uh, the Lord Jesus as our King and Lord and full expression of God with us. And so uh, for this morning, uh, I'd like to tie in our, our, our story and a narrative with the story that we've been uh, working through in the Advent season of God with us. And it shows up in the lives of uh, two individuals in the uh, Christmas narrative uh, that I would like to walk through. And, uh, but for these two, it looks more like an interruption uh, than it does uh, your average daily um, uh, human experience. And so if you would, would you please stand with me and read um, with me uh, Luke chapter 1, verses 26 through 38. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 26. And it says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And a virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month of her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. You may be seated. So, how many of you like interruptions? Interruptions come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. It could be your after service, you're standing out there with, talking with someone, and all of a sudden someone comes crashing into your conversation. They've interrupted you. you know, how, many, how many enjoy being on the phone, although it's kind of rare talking on the phone? Uh, most people text. But how many of you are on the phone, you're talking with your granddaughter in Indianapolis, and all of a sudden you hear that beep going on behind you and thinking, there's a call coming in. It's an interruption. It's kind of annoying, isn't it? But they come in all kinds of other different shapes and sizes as well. It's the, the phone call that you get from the principal to discover that your child's in the principal's office. It's that call that you get from the doctor after you had a scheduled test done a week before. Right? It's the news that you get that 
someone is ill in your life and they passed away. They come in all kinds of shapes and sizes. And what interruptions tend to do in our life is they, they, they tend to generate our, the things that we believe that are in conflict with our desires and our, infect, our affections. And we wrestle with a hypothetical future that we just can't quite figure out. And that's what's going on in the life of these two young folks with these interruptions. These verses are very important when it comes to life because the truth about us, the truth about God's people and heart changes, it usually doesn't happen without God interrupting our life. Luke chapter 1, an angel comes to this young girl, Mary, and as a general rule, Anytime a young girl gets engaged and is planning a wedding, that is not a good time to interrupt her plans. Believe me, we had two of them. Today, when a girl gets engaged, her ring is plastered all over social media. But for Mary, there is no Facebook. There are no tweets. There is no ring. Joseph did not go to Jared. Many New Testament scholars who study uh, New Testament or even Old Testament culture say that Mary was one of the social groups uh, who were called the Anawim. Uh, the Anawim is a plural form of an Old Testament word that means poor, afflicted, humble, and meek. They were people who could not trust in their own strength. They had to depend on God, and that was real clear to them. Uh, and a lot of Psalms speak to this word anawim and anawim piety and talk about how God's care is over the anawim. Psalms chapter 37, verse 11 says, The anawim will inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. For the meek and downtrodden, and the least of these, peace is what they desired. And God's promising the anawim that they would inherit that and delight in that. Psalms 149.4 says, The Lord takes pleasure in his people. He adorns the anawim with salvation. Anawim are people who eagerly hope on God because they know they cannot make it on their own. You ever meet anybody like that? A few months ago, I was walking around downtown uh, with a few uh, partners that we're giving to um, during our Christmas initiative, Building Hope in the City, and we came across a homeless woman and uh, began to talk to her. And as we got around and I began to ask her, is there any way that I could pray for her? And she said this, she says, God is all I need. And, and, and the truth about her was gauging from all the stuff that she owned and was pushing around in a cart. God was all she had. And, and sometimes I experience things like that and I wonder what it is about life now, here, and stuff that capture our affections away from those things that we believe. 
We know Mary was from this group because when Jesus was born, she could, only afford a, she could not afford a lamb for the dedication. We also know in her prayer from later on in this chapter, chapter 1, down in verse 46 through verse 48, this is what she says. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, for he has looked on the Anawim estate, the humble state of his servant. That's code language for Anawim. And then finally, in our story, finally, something good happens to Mary. She gets engaged. And for a young, poor girl, this is huge. Because unmarried Anawim don't have a lot of career options. There's not a lot of scholarships for them to attend the local universities. We don't read about her parents, but once her parents are out of the picture, she's in a very serious predicament if she does not get engaged and married. And so Joseph, well, he's not rich, but he's respectable, and he has a job. So maybe for the first time in Mary's life, in her circumstances, things are looking up. She's engaged. Then her life is interrupted. The angel Gabriel appears to her in verse 28 and says, Greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. And, and, and notice her response in verse 29. It says that Mary was not just troubled, but greatly troubled at the same. And, and the question is, why? Why? This is an angel of the Lord. Why does Mary get so soul-shattered, so anxious about this interruption in her life that comes from out of nowhere? It's impossible for her to expect something like this in her life. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll learn why she gets so soul-shattered. Is because this is the kind of greeting an angel would bring to someone who is going to be the bearer of a huge, gigantic burden. In Judges chapter 6, verse 12, an angel comes to Gideon who was hiding from the Midianites. And an angel says to him, the Lord be with you, mighty warrior. And in a human sense, he's thinking this is impossible. Mary knew this, and so she anxiously awaits for a deep challenge. And basically, Gabriel's saying to her, Mary, you're not going to lead the safe, comfortable, secure, respectable life that you're dreaming of. Your life will not be what young women, young poor girls generally dream about. God has something way more purposeful for your life. Hold on. God's interruptions tend to work this way, don't they? How often in the Bible does an angel interrupt someone and say, the Lord is with you. From now on, you're going to be conflict-free. 
Next week, you're going to get that raise that you didn't get last week. Or you're going to get what you want. Your kids aren't going to need braces. They're going to get scholarships. And all your dreams are going to come through because everything that you put your hand to is going to succeed. How often do we read statements like this from God? Sure, we pray for things like these. And one of the ways you can recognize a divine interruption in, in your life is that it's usually not easy. You feel deeply unqualified. Or worse, that which you believed you now think is impossible. The one whom you put all your affections to, that which you believe the most about, you begin to question him. And the question is, when was the last time you can remember that you let God interrupt your life? In our world, I'm right there. In our world, we set things up for our lives to insulate our life from being interrupted. We landscape our lives so we can hide from God. And rarely in the Bible does someone's heart change, soften before God, or a movement, a major movement of God happen or start without God interrupting someone. God interrupted Abraham and said, time to leave and go to, your, go to a different country. God interrupted Moses and said, you're going to go to Egypt. God interrupted young young men and women all throughout the Old Testament and said, your life's about to change. And I can't think of a better time where this is supremely true than around the time we celebrate the birth of the Lord Jesus. The day of Christmas is God's greatest interruption to humanity. It changed the course of history. The day we celebrate Christmas is God's greatest interruption because if you're like me, for 364 days of the year, God knocks on my life, and I usually have on the door of my heart, do not disturb. I don't want to be interrupted. And for some people like Mary, they know that things are going to change in her life because an angel says, oh, favored one, greetings, greetings. I can't tell you how many times I think and look at my days and weeks or even over this past year that when I get so tied up into my own agenda, and it can be even a good agenda, I get so lost that I insulate myself from the very thing that I desire most, and that is to be fully present with what God's trying to show me about the nature of where my affections really lie. When was the last time you let God interrupt you? This brings us to, I think, in our narrative, to one of the greatest statements uh, in Scripture, one of the many greatest statements. And it's found in Luke chapter 1, verse 37. The angel makes a truth statement. And for some of you, uh, you need to really write this down. You need to mark it in your Bible. You need to tattoo it on your heart because this is God interrupting you today. The angel says to Mary, I know that you are troubled. 
When you question, how can this be? It's never happened before. But I want to tell you something. This is an absolute truth about God. Nothing is impossible with God. When you're interrupted and your emotions and thoughts are flying all over the place, you have that hypothetical future question of not really trying to be able to figure it all out. One thing that you need to take assurance of is whatever it is, God's going to walk with you through it because he's with us, but he can be trusted because whatever he's asking you to do in faith, nothing is impossible with him. You get that? The truth is, despite our best efforts to keep interruptions at a minimum, God interrupts us. And sometimes from our perspective, the interruptions do look impossible. But with the coming of the Lord Jesus, his life is bracketed by two impossibilities, and that is the virgin birth and the empty tomb. And Jesus has a way of entering our life through a door marked no entrance, and then leave through a door that says no exit. The angel comes to Mary and says, God makes impossibilities possible. Embrace that. Own that. Believe that. And pour all your affections into that truth. And that's one of the greatest statements of all of Scripture that was, has that ever been uttered by an angel or a human. But if there is a greater statement in the Bible, it might be the very next verse. In verse 38, what does Mary say to all of this? Let it be to me according to your word. Let it happen. And question, for the third time as you try to think through, where is God trying to interrupt you? Could it be that maybe God is trying to get you and me to a point of saying, let my life reflect your divine purposes? Whatever the interruption is right now, God, you are sovereign enough to, 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 to push that process of existing in my life, but also to accomplish that which you're trying to teach me so that I truly, all my heart's affections are towards you. Where is God trying to interrupt your life? Where is God trying to put you in a corner where all you can think it's impossible, only to prove himself that he is the Lord God Almighty. Where do we need to trust God with our life? And so that's Mary. <clears throat> that's Mary. And so I want to talk a little bit now about Joseph. And so if you will with me, I'd like to read Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, as two of these stories, this couple comes together and what they're learning and what we can learn. So if you will stand with me, I will be reading from Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25, which says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, began being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You may be seated. <clears throat> With Joseph, I want to start with the phrase that Joseph was a righteous man. Uh, there's a rich history behind this word. The word righteous man is a word tazadik. Uh, Joseph was a tazadik, meaning he was a man of outstanding character, striving to obey the law. Uh, he, Joseph is the kind of guy that never mixed with the wrong crowd. Uh, he never left his carpentry shop open on a Sunday or Sabbath to make a few extra bucks. And if you offered him a hand sandwich, he'd turn you down. That's what a tazadik is. Uh, but now, Joseph, he's a tazadik with a fiancé who's pregnant. He knows he's not the father. There's some amazing things going in and around the Christmas story that if we miss this, we miss how God is trying to redefine in the reader's understanding of what it means to be a tazadik, a lover of the law, and what true righteousness really is. So put yourself in his shoes. Your fiancé is pregnant. Your whole reputation is an identity that kind of revolves around one thing, your obedience to the law. And the law had some really, really clear instructions about someone in Mary's condition. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 22, uh, verses 21, uh, it says, if a woman is pledged to be married is unfaithful, what? She shall be brought to the door of her father's house, and there the men of the, her town shall stone her to death. She has done a disgraceful thing in Israel by being promiscuous while still in her father's house. You must purge this evil from among you. The law is crystal clear. And Joseph's reputation as a Tazadik was on the line. His friends would have demanded to have her publicly exposed and punished. But Joseph just can't bring himself to do it. A righteous man wouldn't hesitate, but yet Joseph hesitates. When the angel comes to him, he's already learned that Mary uh, was pregnant. And again, you're, you're engaged, and your fiancé comes to you and says, I have some good news, and I have some bad news. The bad news is I'm pregnant, even though we're not married yet. Joseph, an angel, came to me and said, we're going to have a miracle baby. All the generations that follow will call me blessed, except, of course, Protestants. A last-second desperation throw in the NFL with time running out would be named after me. Joseph, this is going to be amazing. <laughs> the angel said we will conceive a child miraculously. I know it's never happened before, 
But that's what he said. Imagine how much she is trying to convince him of her innocence. She knows the penalty she's facing. Imagine Joseph's struggle. She seems to be sincere, but an angel and a virgin birth? Are you kidding me? So in verse 19, it says, Joseph, a just man, was a just man. He was unwilling to put her, or, or was unwilling to put her to shame, resolving to divorce her quietly. Now, by doing this, he could minimize her suffering and keep his tazadik status. Then in verse 20, God sends a message to Joseph. And see if you can kind of guess the key word here. It says, But after he considered these things, all these things that Mary's telling him, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now, if you're sitting there and you're saying, I, I, I know what the key word there is. It's the word after. It's the word after. The key word in this human narrative is the word after. And the question is, why does God make Joseph wait? Why does God allow him to struggle? Why didn't he just interrupt his, his life ahead of time to explain what was going to happen so he didn't have to struggle? Why didn't he do that? The answer might be kind of hard for us to hear. And that is, maybe, just maybe, anxiety removal was not his number one plan for him. Could it be that living a struggle-free life is not God's number one goal for you? Or for me? Could it be that Joseph was being prepared by God to come to a whole new understanding of what righteousness really is? Could, could, is, is it possible that God allowed Joseph's world to be rocked only so that he would grow spiritually and trust in the one who will save his people from their sins? Is it possible in your life in your hardships, in all of your interruptions, that maybe it's not because you've done something wrong. Maybe God is interrupting you so that you learn to work through fear in ways that you've never imagined because God takes impossibilities and makes them possible. That's what's happening here. The angel says in verse 20, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Here the angel tells Joseph, don't fear to take Mary as his wife, and, and rightfully so. Uh, if, I'm sure he feared that if, if he took her as his wife, he'd be violating the law. There goes his tazadik status. Second, maybe in a very real human way, Joseph was afraid of losing his reputation and how people will think of him. Do any of you get bothered or worry about how, how other people think about you? 
Maybe that was Joseph's case. There, there's no way that people were going to believe him that, that this angel came to this poor couple in an obscure village. There's no way that they're going to believe that, that, that there's a conception in, in the, of, of a child in the body of a virgin teenage girl. How was he going to convince people of that? He knew if he married her, his friends will never accept his account of what happened. He wouldn't be invited to their homes. People wouldn't be coming knocking on his door asking for him to make something for them. He would never, ever again be admired and respected as a tazadik. If he commits himself to Mary and to Jesus, he will do so at the enormous sacrifice. And so what does he do in our passage? He does two things. First, he took Mary home as his wife, and then he names the baby. In the act of naming the child, Joseph is publicly adopting this child as his son. Legally, Joseph has deliberately tied his life, his destiny, his future, and all of his affections to the lives of two stained people. Mark chapter 6, chapter uh, 6 verse 3 says, or at least shows us a part of the price that Joseph paid when he tied his destiny, his hypothetical future, to the one who he named Jesus. It says, isn't this the son of Mary? People are questioning Jesus. And Joseph's probably dead by now, but even if he's not, a man in Israel is always referred to the son of the father. And to refer to a man as the son of the mother was an insulting, derogatory expression. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 3 shows decades later that Joseph's reputation still has not recovered from his marriage and or him raising this child. It's amazing to think about Joseph. In decades, centuries, millennial, millions of people like Joseph allow themselves to be interrupted by God and then deliberately tie their destiny to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's everywhere. We support folks like that all over the world. Many of you have endured great hardship, enormous pain, interruptions that when they happened in your life, you quite couldn't figure out that hypothetical future. And you're here. And your testimony is, God takes impossibilities and makes them possible. And so what does this mean for us? I think I have a few minutes left here. Um, <clears throat> I kind of added some thoughts here that I want to close with. And so I wish I had more time to express them, but so here they are, three things. Um, <clears throat> first, for um, both Mary and Joseph, uh, after the angel comes to them, uh, the angel's initial reply, initial reply to them was to fear not. Uh, Luke describes Mary as greatly troubled. Uh, Matthew does the same thing, do not fear. Uh, initially, these two are an emotional mess by this interruption. Uh, they can't quite figure out their circumstances. For them, their, their, their present impossibility clouds their long-term understanding of the truth. Mary questions, how can this be? And so what does God do in this narrative? He gives them 
a hope that is based on an absolute certain future reality. The answer to their, their interruption is not trying to figure it out now. It's looking what they should know or what they'll learn about about their absolute certain future. So to Mary, he says, do not fear for your son future will be great. I'll take care of the impossibility now. You focus on your son will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give him the throne, his father David, and he will in the future reign over the house of Jacob forever. And in the future, starting now, his kingdom will never end. Don't get too bogged down about what you cannot figure out right now in your circumstances. Look to the promise of a guaranteed future about the Lord Jesus and your own life. To Joseph, he says, don't fear for Jesus, what? Will save his people from their sins. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. This is a fundamental process of life change. And that is as we process all of our present circumstances, our divine interruptions, that we put off all the unknown conclusions of impossibilities that we tell ourselves. God is showing us here that when he interrupts us, we need to look to the absolute certain future that he has for us. This is why years later, God has Paul write in Romans chapter 8, verse 18, for consider that the sufferings, when? The sufferings of this present time, they can't even be compared. They're not even worthy of comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us in our future. That's what we hope for. One day, or it's kind of exciting too as you continue reading um, in chapter 8 uh, of Romans 8, um, Paul says, our ultimate hope, this is a paraphrase, this is a Joe paraphrase, our ultimate hope over the present inward groanings, the fear that comes when we encounter difficult times will be to eagerly await a future into the future, constantly reminding ourselves of our ultimate future reality. And he ends the chapter saying, the redemption of our bodies. Whatever's happening to my body now, whatever threat that I'm feeling, it's not all that there is. What all that there is, is this body's going to be redeemed. And that's my hope. And I'm going to live for Jesus, with Jesus, forever, in all of eternity. That's what I need to put my mind to. So what is your interruption? What's causing you so much soul turmoil that you quite can't figure out your hypothetical future? God's word is always going to point us to a future that's certain that we will all experience, that I will experience. And that brings an enormous amount of hope. Which leads me to my second point. Mary and Joseph's response. Uh, at the end of Joseph's uh, narrative, uh, he names the baby. But Luke uh, takes the reader a little deeper into Mary's soul by recording her declaration of faith. Uh, she says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to, you, to your word. Um, now, this is more than just an admission of what Mary's believing at this point in time. Luke is writing, and as he's writing, he's showing the reader um, more of Mary's heart affections. He's doing it by writing uh, in the original language, by trying to answer. In the original language, they have, they, I'm not going to say the word because, you know, people get lost and you'll start thinking about other things. I want to say tied here. The, the, in, the, in the original language, there is a, a, an ending that confirms the fact that there's a hypothetical future that Mary just quite can't figure out. And so he uses that here. But he's trying to answer this hypothetical future question of what would happen to Mary if what the angel says really happens. Mary's life has clearly been interrupted. How will Mary respond if what the angel says really happens? And so Luke is showing us here more of where her affections lie at that moment in the beginning of her interruption than what she can really understand or maybe even believe at this point in her life. And her response is more of a, I don't have a clue on how this is going to happen or work. But what? But behold, I am your servant. It's looking right into her soul. I don't understand this. I don't know how it's all going to work. But my affections are yours. I am a servant. My affections are to you and what you want to do in my light life. Let everything in my life happen from the truth of your omnipotent, sovereign purposes. And, you know, I, I really believe, I really, really believe, and have come to learn in my life up to this point, that this is God, why God interrupts us most of the times, to get our affections aligned with what we truly believe about God, his nature, and his word. Last um, uh, both Mary and Joseph are interrupted, and the primary character really in the story, uh, which can be talked about in another message, is Jesus. Uh, and, and, and Jesus, uh, for some of you, uh, you, you need to know that in his character, he's an interrupter. Um, there's a verse in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Um, John is writing to seven churches to bring them hope in the midst of really, really, really hard times. And um, this verse really communicates more about Jesus' character than who his audience is. And, and it says this, and many of you know it and, and have read it, and it says, look, I have been standing at the door and I'm constantly knocking, trying to interrupt your life. If anyone hears me calling him and opens the door to my interruption, I will come in and fellowship with him and he with me. You know what this is really saying about Jesus' character? And that is Jesus doesn't wait for you to know or come to the conclusion that you need him. His character is to pursue you. His character is to interrupt your life. When Joseph made the decision to wed Mary, he thought it, it was the end of his reputation as a righteous man. He didn't know fully that the child that he would adopt would bring a new kind of righteousness that would come through Jesus and what he did and accomplished on the cross. And so if you're here and you don't know Jesus, he's trying to interrupt your life with truth. If you're here and you've been following Jesus for a year, 
be reassured that nothing's impossible with God in your life. He can be trusted as you focus what you will ultimately be in the presence of God in the future. That's hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this time in um, the story of these two individuals that represent the essence of who you are and the ultimate purposes from Genesis chapter 1 is that you would be with your people and you've always been with your people. And so, Lord, as we, as we reflect on you being with us, we look at these two and, Lord, may you work and interrupt our lives to align our affections with what we truly believe about you and your son who is king and king and Lord of our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name.